Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell, and we'll be finding out how he rose from obscurity to become a head of state, and how, why, and when he became such a hate figure in Ireland. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about a forgotten woman from the history of Irish theatre, investigated how Russia views its history, and debated whether the Celts even ever existed. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Born in 1599, Oliver Cromwell rose from obscurity to become a brilliant general, the person who put Charles I to death, and the Lord Protector of England, Scotland and Ireland. Before his death in 1658, he turned down the chance to become King Oliver, and to later generations he was hailed as a great Republican. However, for others, his reputation was more controversial, especially in Ireland, where he was responsible for various massacres and atrocities. And tonight we're going to re-examine his life and his controversial reputation. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Mihola Shukru of Trinity College Dublin is a leading expert on Oliver Cromwell and is the author of God's Executioner, Oliver Cromwell and the Conquest of Ireland. And he's currently part of the editorial team, which has produced, or it's certainly going to be published in a couple of months' time, a new three-volume edition of Cromwell's Letters, Papers and Speeches, and that's published by Oxford University Press. Dr Miranda Mallins is an historian specialising in the history of Oliver Cromwell and has been a trustee of the Cromwell Association for many years. She's written two historical novels about the Cromwell family, The Puritan Princess, published in 2020, and The Rebel Daughter, published earlier this year. Professor John Morrill is Professor Emeritus of British and Irish History at Cambridge University and is the general editor of that Oxford University multi-volume collection of Cromwell's letters and writings. His new book will be published next year and it's called Oliver Cromwell, The Brave bad man of British history. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Sarah Covington, Professor of History at the Graduate Centre and Queen's College of the City of New York. And she's the author of a new book, The Devil from Over the Sea, Remembering and Forgetting Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. So it is a fairly stellar panel tonight. And John, I might begin with you and maybe that subtitle for your forthcoming new book, The Brave Bad Man of British History, because you know, maybe in this country, in Ireland, we see him more as the bad man and we maybe don't acknowledge or talk about those other aspects, especially that career in British history, which really is quite remarkable. Yeah, that, that soubriquet, brave bad man, came from the Earl of Clarendon, who was Charles II's chief minister and in fact had been in exile um, or driven into exile by Cromwell. So it's very grudging, but it's also uh, a recognition that this is a man who um, well, rode the tide of revolution. I mean, who, who, who controlled the, the forces that were leading to a complete collapse of the state, drove through uh, very controversially the killing of Charles I as an incorrigible tyrant, um, and who then took power but sought to limit himself in power um, and refused, as you as you indicated, becoming king. I mean, the case for him is that in Britain, in Britain, and I stress not Ireland, he was a great champion of religious liberty, um, and that meant, and also, in fact, of religious equality, giving equality of rights as well as uh, as well as liberty. And that, uh, I mean, I mean, he 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 more controversially can claim to be a supporter of the accountability of those um, who govern. Now, we're going to have to look at the very different um, pattern of events in, in Ireland, um, where I blame the English generally, rather than Cromwell in particular. But nonetheless, um, that's, that's a kind of 
very brief summary. And John, do you think the the way he was able to to rise so rapidly in the 1640s was it because almost like the sheer force of personality that he believed he was this was doing God's will and God's work and that seemed to really inspire those around him that that and that's what's made him a brilliant general more than being tactically uh, ingenious he was he was someone who really inspired those around him and became this great leader he's um, he's not an innovator in military terms he doesn't he's not like a Wellington or a Marlborough um, but he is someone who just wins every battle I mean he's a pugilist uh, his belief, absolute belief that, that that he is serving God and that God is supporting him, which he communicates uh, to those around him, um, including the large numbers of common soldiers, uh, is clearly absolutely, absolutely essential. But, you know, he's a, uh, he's a practical man. It, it so turns out that only once in the whole of his career did he have an inferior number of troops on the battlefield. He always got uh, enough men to fight. He doesn't fight a battle unless he's already got the odds in his favour. When he fights at Dunbar in Scotland in 1650, he was cornered and in a really desperate situation. And he won at that by an extraordinarily brilliant night attack, which is incredibly difficult in the early modern period. And there's, there are, interestingly, there are separate reports of him laughing manically um, at the end of that battle because here he hadn't just um, in, his, in, a, in a famous phrase, praised God and kept his powder dry. He had actually um, owed this victory entirely to God because he shouldn't have won it. And when he won it against all the odds, he, then he knew absolutely for sure that he was God's agent. Miranda, he can appear a somewhat contradictory figure. He's certainly a very complex figure. And I think his reputation, even in Britain, is is and has been mixed in Ireland. It's perhaps uh, more unambiguously negative. But has, is that something that, that surprises you or that when you see different reactions to Cromwell uh, in different parts of the world? Very much so. Um, and I think that, that actually explains why so many of us... Um, love to work on him and read about him because he is he is such a complex figure um, who seems to live on particularly in sort of a cartoon caricature and we're all used to the Cromwell who is dressed in black and covered in warts and very stern and he's um, gets his kicks from uh, killing the king and uh, cancelling Christmas and pulling down maples and all of these things. And, um, you know, that, that's obviously one side of Cromwell. He was obviously a devoted Puritan for whom his relationship with God was the guiding force of his life. But actually, he, he was a bit more of a rounded figure than that would suggest. Um, as John says, he was uh, a passionate believer and advocate in, in toler- of toleration and hated persecution. Um, and on, on a personal level, he was much more sort of uh, moderate, pragmatic, conciliatory, um, and more of a lover of, uh, you know, the, the fun things in life. He, when he lived as Lord Protector in the royal palaces of Hampton Court and Whitehall, there was hunting and hawking and dancing and feasting. Um, he loved music um, passionately. But again, we get that wrong these days because, because he didn't approve of music in churches, because he believed that distracted from the word of God. Um, we, we think of him as being, uh, you know, against all sort of forms of, of art and culture and a Philistine. But in fact, he just enjoyed those disputes um, outside of church. And he also had um, a real talent for cultivating friends across social, political and religious groups. Um, he loved lively conversation and debate. He liked to be challenged. He liked to have uh, arguments over glasses of wine. Um, so, you know, he, he, he is a much more complicated and sort of rounded figure, I think, than uh, the stereotype that we're all so used to would suggest. Exactly, that this idea of this, uh, you know, Puritan fanatic. But Miranda, how do you reconcile then the elements of the career where there is this strong religious fervour and belief that drives him to do some, and we'll be going on to talk about these, some very terrible things, and that it's hard to reconcile these different aspects to his to his life and career. It, it is. It's very hard to reconcile, but I think that's particularly the case looking back at him with modern eyes, really. 
Um, I think at the time, although there were some at the time who accused him of hypocrisy um, for living in, you know, seeming to live in one way and and maybe, um, you know, living in another way in terms of what he was um, uh, doing with his religious policies and with in in Ireland in particular. But I, I think actually there was less of a contradiction at the time in his brand of Puritanism. I mean, he... He was at heart a sort of conservative with a small C, uh, kind of minor country gentleman. Um, and he did believe very, very passionately in this idea of toleration. Um, and, and that, again, is something that you know wasn't common um, at the time. Again, it's hard to square with his actions in Ireland, but I know we're going to come back to that. Um, but um, that was really about uh, his attitude to, to Catholics and Catholicism, which again goes back to the, the legacy or the, the, uh, that Catholics had in uh, Britain in particular for, since the um, gunpowder plot and the, the reign before that of Queen Elizabeth I. It, it, it is hard to square, but I guess, you know, and John will say more about this, it's easier to square the more time you spend in Oliver's company, reading his letters and really digging into the sources and trying to strip away the centuries of myth that we've all been fed really ever since the restoration. Michal, you were on our, it was our second show back in October 2006 on Oliver Cromwell. Uh, That was the last time we had a full debate on Cromwell. And I have to say, I feel more confused today than I was then. And I thought I had a a clear view of Cromwell. And uh, and now there's all these extra layers and ambiguity. And is that the scholarship of, of more recent decades or is it taking a broader picture of Cromwell? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, Patrick, um, to be honest. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm very interested in hearing both John and Miranda what they're saying there about issues like toleration. I mean, I think that's highly debatable, frankly. Um, and I, I, I think really we need to strip away, rather than create new ambiguous layers, to strip away to perhaps some of the, the core reality of this. And, and the reality is that Cromwell's a strong man. He's a military dictator. Uh, and yes, he executed the king, but by 1653, a few years later, he has become head of state by the power of the army. Uh, and and really, that's the bottom line here. Uh, and there are other aspects of him, of course, and there's other things we can talk about. And 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 everybody's got different different um, character uh, or character traits or, or personal traits. But that that really is what is behind all of this. And I don't I don't myself see such a huge contrast, if you like, between what's going on in England and even in Scotland and what goes on in Ireland. I mean, really, what's behind all this is military power uh, and an absolute fanaticism to see your own viewpoint prevail. And that's what happens. And Mial, it's interesting the way even in the 1790s, someone like Theobald Wolftone admired, who we see as the father of modern Irish republicanism, he admired Oliver Cromwell as the great republican. And there were figures in Ireland and, and Britain and around the world who, who admired him because he is a republican, because he rose from nothing and, as you say, became a head of state. And there was something really quite remarkable in that, in that career. No, no question about that. I mean, it is a remarkable career coming from relative obscurity. Let's not overstress that. I mean, he was a landowner. Uh, he's not exactly coming from nowhere. Uh, but relative obscurity, and it is a remarkable career in a very, very short period of time. You know, he rises to the very top, which is an extraordinary achievement in the 17th century in particular. Uh, you know, but really whether... Cromwell was a Republican or not, again, is highly debatable. His Republican sort of colleagues and friends grew increasingly disillusioned with Cromwell um, uh, throughout the 1650s and saw him as betraying the revolution uh, and becoming protector, becoming effectively re-establishing that rule from the top that they had fought so hard to remove. Uh, and I think you mentioned in your introductory uh, notes there about, you know, he was offered or there was a potential that he'd be offered the crown. Uh, and so that's really the stage we've got to. So whether whether you can really even call Cromwell a Republican, I think is, is something that can be debated. But you're absolutely right that certainly looking back a lot of people saw him as such and saw him as the killer of the king and setting up for a brief period in English Republic and that perhaps for a long time for a lot of people was his most important legacy. And John, can you explain to us uh, Cromwell's rise in the context of the 1640s, a time of civil war, a time of great turmoil? Uh, Why was the king overthrown? Why was the king put to death? What were these big issues that were were being debated at this time? 
Well, uh, he's the mirror image of Cromwell in the sense that, you know, that he is absolutely determined to impose his own vision of church and state um, on all three of his kingdoms. Um, and uh, he is pulling the, um, the religious settlement of the rest, which had always been very unstable. This Church of England, which was, as, as Hooker called it, both Catholic and Reformed, which had stripped away the corruptions of Rome, but had retained the integrity of, uh, of the continuity of Christianity. He's trying to impose that on all three kingdoms. And those who thought that the uh, English Reformation was, was a half-finished business and still had things to go, you know, resisted him and, and, and attacked him. Now, in, his, in, in, in order to support this view of, um, of himself as a, as a religious leader, uh, the king was willing to pay ducks and drakes for the legal system. I mean, he, he, there, are, there are huge um, corruptions of justice, uh, trials which are, which are fixed. Uh, the, the, the rule of law is breaking down. And so there are civil as well as religious reasons for being really, really frightened by uh, the bigotry of Charles I. Cromwell's rise is, 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 is probably one of the most obscure, one of the poorest men in the Parliament of 1640, was indeed his absolute conviction uh, that he was called by God to some great work. He starts as a regional, as a captain in a regional army, because that, that part of the country is, uh, is, is solidly parliamentarian. All the troops raised there are marched away to fight elsewhere. He's left to look after what looks like a safe region, which then the royalists choose to attack. And suddenly he rises dramatically from um, being you know, a, a captain to being a lieutenant general and leading the cavalry of the east of England. And he's so successful in that that when a national army is formed um, in the winter of 1644-45, he becomes the cavalry um, commander for the whole of the national army. And that becomes the basis of his power. And he is the person who, when, when everyone else is, is, is panicking at the end of the 1640s, says, we've given the king endless opportunities to come to a settlement. Every time he lies and cheats, we've simply got to um, end this and to have a non-government uh, without kings. And that's one definition of republicanism setting up a government without kings. There was never any chance he was going to become king. He absolutely uh, resisted it. He was a very reluctant head of state. He thought he was, God was forcing him to do it against his own preference. And he did not, um, he did not seek um, the, 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 all the, 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 the baubles that go with monarchy. Miranda, Britain now has King Charles III. Uh, when we look back to what happened to King Charles I, it's not a, a, a very pretty ending. What was, was British society shocked by the execution of the king in 1649? Was, was there a split in the country or how controversial was this at the time? I think it was deeply shocking, um, deeply shocking, not just to the population in um, in Britain, but also around the world. And I think it, it had its after effect. It's still having its after effect, I would argue, um, <clears throat> around the world now. Um, but in terms of the reaction, it, it was very much, you know, the trial and the execution of Charles I was, you know, not what the majority of those who fought for Parliament went to war to achieve. Um, you know, most of those fighting on Parliament's side were keen to keep the king on his throne and to keep the monarchy. And as John was just uh, alluding to, you know, there were huge efforts after the First Civil War and the Second Civil War to, you know, find an agreement with the king. So it really is, and this, this is why I always tend to think um, if we can label Cromwell as one or other, I always think of him as slightly more of a monarchist, actually, than a Republican, because I think probably at base level, he did think that uh, a mixed, a limited sort of monarchy a constitutional monarchy was probably the best and most secure and stable form of government. But he himself wasn't particularly, as he said, wedded and glued to forms of government. He was a pragmatist at heart. And once it became clear that, you know, the, the king, they couldn't reach uh, an agreement with the king, then, you know, he had to he had to help to force through um, the, the only outcome that, that was possible at that point, which really was the king's execution. But it was a shocking moment for 
um, the population as a whole. And uh, a lot of people at the time were gathered around the scaffold and taking you know, the, the king's blood as it was falling on. They were taking it in, in handkerchiefs and things, and taking it away as mementos. Um, and I think the problem really throughout the remaining years of the Commonwealth, the, the interregnum years, uh, was how the various succeeding forms of government and constitutional experiments um, and particular, in particular Cromwell, how to take the general public with them on this journey into the unknown, really, because it's all very well to kill the king and abolish the monarchy and the House of Lords, but what do you replace it with? And I think that was at, at, at a core problem for the protectorate um, in those five years, um, you know, in the late 1650s. And then that, because that circle was, was never really squared. And that's why so many people were keen to make Cromwell king. Um, so many of uh, politicians at the time, rather, rather than the general public, it was because they could sense that actually monarchy was so deeply embedded in, you know, British culture um, and in precedent and in the laws of the land, that it was always going to be the most attractive form of settlement for the general public. And so, so it proved eventually with the restoration. And Michal, in between all of this, we have that short but very uh, dramatic visit to Ireland and time in Ireland uh, starting in 1649. And it's, it's not a very long period, but it leaves such an enormous legacy in Irish history. And I don't fully understand what happened in Ireland, whether the, the massacres and atrocities we see at places like Drogheda and, and Wexford, is that, is that, are they examples of anti-Catholic feeling? Is it revenge and punishment for uh, what he believes the Catholics did when they tried to rise up in 1641? Is there a, a land grab going on? What is the motivation that's driving him to become God's executioner, as you call your book? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a variety of, of motivations there, as you've touched on, Patrick. I mean, obviously, uh, there there's the immediate threat, perhaps, of a royalist uh, counterattack emanating from Ireland. So that needs to be dealt with militarily. There's the issue of vengeance for 1641, the alleged massacres of, of tens of thousands of, of Protestant settlers at the outbreak of the rebellion back uh, eight years earlier. There's also the land grab issue, which is uh, to pay back those merchant adventurers who have given huge sums of money to the English Parliament to finance their war effort, and also to tens of thousands of English soldiers who haven't been paid in, in some cases for a number of years. So this is a very convenient way that by seizing uh, Irish Catholic land, you'll be able to 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 pay back that debt. But I think behind all of that, and those are all absolutely valid and and uh, uh, motivations are are certainly correct motivations in terms of trying to assess this. But behind all this, I think is an aggressive English nationalism, uh, and I think we tend to uh, sort of forget, or oftentimes in the history of these islands, forget about the the prevalence of this aggressive nationalism, uh, where the English saw it as their right to assert their dominance uh, in Ireland. And they had, I think, as Henry Arton's uh, Cromwell's son-in-law said, we have every right to be there. Um, and, and so for them, it, th- there wasn't really a, a sort of a problem or an issue around this, but it's a manifestation of that nationalism. Uh, and I, I think it sort of moves on to Cromwell, really, the imperialist, because we see emerging from this, if you like, uh, the sort of, uh, sort of genesis of this first English empire, which now begins to flex its muscles, not only internally, but also externally. And Ireland, unfortunately for us, is the first target. So is it more an imperial mission than a sectarian one? And when maybe if you talk to us about what actually happened at Drogheda, should we see it in that context rather than as something that was a sectarian religious atrocity or is it both? Well, I I mean, I think there is clearly a religious element to this. There's no question about that. And I think what happened at Wexford and Drogheda has tended to to, uh, draw most attention. They're very spectacular uh, events, uh, bloody events. In the in the storming of both of both towns, but they're actually only the opening sort of salvo, Patrick, of what goes on to be a genocidal campaign um, of extermination. Uh, and even by English accounts themselves, as many as a third of the Irish population dies over the next three to four years. I mean, this is an extraordinarily brutal campaign of conquest. Uh, and whatever justifications they may have given at the time, the reality was that. Uh, and as I said, you know, the, regardless of everything else that goes on, it's very hard to look beyond that in terms of trying to understand Cromwell and what he's doing at the time. OK, well, we are talking history and tonight 
tonight we're debating the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell we're going to take a quick break now but when we come back I'll be talking to Professor Sarah Covington about Cromwell the devil from over the sea and his long lasting reputation in Ireland so stay with us here on News Talk Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Sarah Covington, Professor of History at the Graduate Centre and Queen's College of the City of New York and the Director of Irish Studies at Queen's College. And she's the author of a new book, The Devil from Over the Sea, Remembering and Forgetting Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. Sarah, it's a wonderful title, The Devil from Over the Sea. Is that how Cromwell was viewed in Ireland? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I I found that, well, first of all, I I took that from a a folklore tale about him, and there are hundreds, literally hundreds of these tales in the National Folklore Collection. Uh, There are more stories about Oliver Cromwell than anyone else except for Daniel O'Connell. So it's much more complex and nuanced than just him being the devil. But the curse of Cromwell and all of that, you know, it does kind of, he certainly was considered a devil as well. And is there, can you track it in terms of the centuries that his reputation uh, isn't maybe as, as bad as black in some centuries and then his story and the accounts get rediscovered or retold? So it seems like in the 19th century, there seems to be a lot more of anti-Cromwellian uh, materials coming out. Yeah, that, that's right. And he is a great villain in Irish history. And, 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 and he, he served a lot of functions as a villain, just like uh, Napoleon was a villain to the Germans, and I suppose Benedict Arnold in this country in, in the United States. But um, yeah, there was definitely sort of a barometer of, of his um, afterlife. In the beginning, in the 17th century, in his own lifetime, he uh, was definitely painted as the devil. And in, and a lot of this the iconography, a lot, there was a lot of attachment to his visual uh, face, like his nose especially. He had a very large nose. And so a lot of propaganda, anti-Cromwell propaganda, sort of traveled from England during the Civil Wars to Ireland, where it then took on a whole life of its own. So he was imagined as the devil in his own time and after his death. And then he sort of goes goes fallow a little bit. And, and he's sort of an embarrassing memory. And, and so there there is a certain amount of willful forgetting and then he, he basically sort of explodes in the 19th century. And part of this is he's, he's very good um, as a fundraiser for nationalist, for nationalism in America, for example. And also the um, kind of a new, newly reassertive Catholicism uh, with Catholic emancipation, sort of um, there's more attention given to him as in a religious context. So you see much more emphasis on Andrada and, and Wexford, the massacres, which are painted in religious terms. and uh, Whereas earlier, you see more focus on his legacy in terms of land policies. And Sarah, it's interesting as well how you show that it wasn't always, though, as this satanic figure. Sometimes he could be presented as, as a somewhat comic figure. Yeah, and I, I, that's very interesting. I, I mean, I'm a historian, so I was uh, both really overjoyed, but also puzzled by his depictions in various uh, folkloric tales um, over the centuries in Ireland, and and he's sometimes portrayed as the king of Ireland, who who uh, is born in Ireland and goes to England and comes back to conquer it. Um, he's he's often portrayed, especially in tales about land confiscation. He's often portrayed as a as a, a moderating force, and in fact, it's the men under him, the, the so-called Cromwellians, who get a darker name. Um, but in being called Cromwellian, they, they sort of bring along his Cromwell's name and memory. I'm fascinated by the, the subtitle and the idea of, of remembering and forgetting Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. So there were periods where, as you say, his story, his, his legacy wasn't really remembered as much. And was there a deliberate attempt, perhaps, to forget him? Yeah, ways to misremember or, or privately remember and publicly forget or officially erase someone, but uh, definitely in the Restoration after, people in England as well uh, did kind of want to just forget him and everything he represented, with the exception of a few voices, uh, which did say, including in Ireland, which did say, well, things were better under Cromwell, uh, but those are very elusive. 
voices. And especially I have one chapter in how all this sort of migrated to Irish America and the Orange Movement here. And, and uh, he really took hold here. Um, in fact, a lot of America sort of claims him as an honorary American, uh, even though Americans like Thomas Jefferson uh, view him as well as a, a tyrant. And so that, that's kind of interesting is that migration of memory. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about remembering and forgetting Oliver Cromwell in Ireland, Professor Sarah Covington, the author of The Devil from Over the Sea. And we'll be back with more Talking History after the break as we rejoin our panel and talk about the death, reputation and legacy of Oliver Cromwell. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell. Before the break, we heard from Professor Sarah Covington about how Oliver Cromwell has been remembered and indeed forgotten in Ireland. And now I'm rejoined by my panel, Professor Michal Oshukru of Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Miranda Mallins, uh, a trustee of the Cromwell Association and the author of The Rebel Daughter, and Professor John Morrill, Professor Emeritus at Cambridge University and the general editor of the multi-volume collection of Cromwell's works and he's also the author of a new forthcoming book Oliver Cromwell The Brave Bad Man of British History Miranda can I ask a question about what Cromwell was like in private as maybe as a father as a husband uh, as a person to maybe spend time with well absolutely that, that's actually how I've been trying to think and write about him in the last five years or so as I've been writing these two historical novels um, which are through the eyes of Cromwell's daughters And it's been a really, really interesting exercise, actually, as a historian who previously looked at Cromwell much more as a public figure to try and uh, understand him as a a private family man. Um, And, you know, what what I have found is that he was enormously close to his family. Uh, He was particularly surrounded by women. He was the only son in his uh, family with, with six sisters and a widowed mother who he lived with for the rest of his life when his father died, when Cromwell was only 17, um, and had to, he had to come home from university and look after the family. Um, and then he goes on to have a very close relationship with his own wife, Elizabeth, and they have nine children, um, six of whom survive into sort of later adulthood, and four of those six are daughters. And um, Cromwell is a very devoted um, husband and also parent, actually, He takes a lot of time to negotiate his children's uh, marriages. Uh, He writes to his children and, you know, is very um, concerned for their welfare, even when they are adults. Um, We have a letter of his from Bridget Cromwell when she's married to Henry Ireton. Um, And similarly, he talks to her about uh, her new marriage to Henry Ireton and also about uh, his daughter Elizabeth as well and her new marriage. And he worries about his children. He worries about his sons. Uh, particularly Richard Cromwell, whether he's, um, you know, godly enough, whether he's spending too much money, whether he's uh, being too lazy or, or whatever. Um, you know, he, he, he is very much involved in their lives. And um, this, I think this is an important aspect of his public persona as well, actually, because looking at him as a, as a father and as a husband enables us really to see, firstly, what his protector at court was like. It was actually really very um, uh, full of women, full of, uh, you know, life and full of uh, younger generations. So his children, his adult children and his grandchildren, a lot of them lived with him in the royal palaces and were there with him at state events. Famously, he used to take his grandchildren into council state meetings to sit on his his knee. Um, So you really get the impression that the protectorate was a sort of family affair. and uh, the other thing is that I think that it helps us understand the way he saw his role as Lord Protector. He, he had quite a sort of paternalistic um, attitude to it. He spoke of himself being a good constable. And as John said earlier, was a bit of a reluctant head of state. And I think he saw himself in those, uh, that fatherly aspect uh, towards the nation, the nations, in the same way that he was very used to um, being the father uh, of, of his own wide family. And Miranda, did things become dangerous for the children after the restoration in 1660 when Charles II became uh, king? And uh, was it suddenly uh, a bad thing to be uh, a Cromwell? Well, it's such that they live such an extraordinary life. It's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by them, because they, they go on this 
unique journey with that with Oliver Cromwell from relative obscurity to become effectively a royal family, really. Um, but as you say, at the Restoration, suddenly the Cromwells are very much, you know, persona non grata. Um, but actually, the new king and the new the government is really very uh, forgiving and understanding of the Cromwell's position. Um, Richard Cromwell, who had succeeded his father to be head of state as Lord Protector, does flee into exile, although that's actually probably more to avoid uh, the people to whom he owed a lot of money uh, than actually the state. But certainly the state did keep quite a close eye on him um, when he was living abroad for the next 20 years in a rather sad and solitary existence um, under false names and, and not particularly having a nice time. Um, the rest of the Cromwell family are allowed to stay you know, as long as they sort of stay quiet and live in obscurity. They do stay in England, retreating to various country houses. Um, but, you know, their, their, their public lives are, for the most part, really over. And for those from the younger generation, that's obviously, that would have been very difficult because they were quite young at that point. Um, there are a couple of exceptions. The Cromwell's youngest daughters, um, Francis and Mary, actually live very, very long lives right into the 18th century. And in Mary's case, she marries Viscount Falkenberg, who actually goes on to have a successful career under Charles II and under the restored Stuarts and uh, has various great offices um, which, are, which are given to him. And so he and his wife, actually Mary, uh, Mary Cromwell as was, actually live um, at the, you know, and, and socialise and everything at the restored Stuart court. And uh, famously, uh, various decades later, um, Mary and also Francis become these sort of uh, figures of interest to visitors to the court because obviously, you know, they are the daughters of such a famous, brave, bad man who has known the world throughout and actually look quite similar to him. So they, uh, it's an extraordinary afterlife for this um, very unique family. John, did Cromwell have a view of what he wanted to happen after his death? Because it all seems to to crumble and come to an end fairly quickly afterwards and you see the monarchy restored. Did he have his own vision of what he wanted to see happen? Almost certainly we don't know what it is. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of destruction of papers um, that actually obscure this from us. Something which he didn't particularly want was thrust upon him about 15 months before he died. That, that rather than have Parliament elect his successor, he was told he had to nominate his successor. Um, and when he dies, uh, there is a almost certainly invented story that as he was lying dying with a very high temperature, he kind of breathed out Richard, let's say his son, um, and that that was kind of the what the council had to Let's botch this together. There are various theories of what he might have wanted. The likeliest explanation for me is that he would have nominated uh, the most moderate of the senior army commanders, the one most likely to be able to bring the old royalists back into some sort of partnership with the um, former parliamentarians. Um, that's to say John Lambert. And that, that the, military, the military people in the council wouldn't stomach that. Uh, everybody thought they could control Richard. Richard was the candidate who was was weak, and they all thought they could control. I don't think for a minute that Cromwell actually once knew, that he knew that his son, for reasons that Miranda's always given, that his son was not going to be a worthy successor. He had to choose between uh, his younger son, Henry, who was in Ireland, who incidentally um, uh, lived in Cambridgeshire and died um, without any further disturbance, even though he'd been Lord Deputy in Ireland in the 1650s. Henry would have been a much more effective um, person, but I think that, that Lambert was the man that Cromwell was, was, was probably saw as his natural successor, a, a man of, of, of greater social standing than himself, someone who has shared his views on religious liberty and freedom, someone who was, uh, was an intellectual. He founded a university in Durham with extremely enlightened charter. Um, he was busy um, in retirement from the army, growing tulips in, in the Royal Palace at Wimbledon and experimenting with horticulture. This was a very widely, uh, a widely cultured man who could have been a reassuring presence of bringing the former enemies together. But, uh, but other than that, he simply wanted to build a country that was based on very broad religious freedom, parliamentary, a parliamentary system. 
um, and with with a head of state who was very limited, who didn't who didn't make uh, policy. The policy was made by council state, which he didn't appoint. Mihal, talk to me about this very exciting project uh, going to be published by Oxford University Press of this new edition of Cromwell's Letters, Papers and Speeches. I wonder, has working on that given you new insights into Cromwell? Are there been new discoveries and maybe changed some of your uh, views on Cromwell? Yeah, well, it's a it's a very exciting project. It's been going on almost fifteen years now, uh, and hopefully we'll see. As you said, the three volumes are are due out next next month, um, and you know it's a fairly definitive collection of his surviving uh, letters, papers, uh, reports, and his speeches. But as John has pointed out, a lot of material doesn't survive. So you know it's a partial view, but nonetheless, uh, it's given us a great opportunity to to look again to reassess uh, the the man uh, and and his career. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, of course, we're, we're finding out new things all the time, which is great. And we're hearing from Miranda, you know, stuff about his, his personal family life, which is absolutely fascinating. But in terms of the, the basic core uh, um, sort of career that he had and the policies that he's pursued, I mean, it's really more confirming, in a sense, what, we, what we've known rather than necessarily bringing sort of, you know, uh, a complete reassessment, Patrick, of, 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 of the Cromwell we know. Uh, and I'm I'm just kind of fascinated listening to to my colleagues across the water there, and they're you know talking again and stressing like religious freedoms and liberty, etc. And 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 really, I mean, we we have to I think put a big caveat on this because you know religious freedom, but freedom as Cromwell understood it, and that did not include freedom for a huge number of people and for a significant number of religions. So I mean, I, I think we we need to be a little bit careful in terms of how we present that. And liberty was also a very selective thing uh, as far as Cromwell understood it. And it reminds me of a, another colleague of mine who described Cromwell constantly wrestling with his conscience, but always winning. Uh, and, you know, for a reluctant man, he seemed to go very far. Uh, and it seems that, you know, when the big decisions had to be made, he always ended up coming out on top, which was very fortunate for him. So I, I, I think that, yes, we're looking at a very complex man, a fascinating man. There's no question about that. Uh, and I think that we could argue about him forever. Um, but the core things, I think, remain. Uh, and I think ultimately it's a very violent, destructive legacy and one that is hugely problematic, obviously much more so here in Ireland than uh, than across the water. Yeah, John, on that question of religious toleration and religious freedom, I think uh, you were in conversation with, with Michal back in Trinity in Dublin, uh, I think it was, well, a couple of years ago. and. Yeah. And talking about an exciting document that uh, we're looking at, which seemed to be uh, offering religious freedom for Catholics once they practice their religion in their own home. He seemed to be tolerant towards uh, 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 Jews. I find it it's it's again that question of how you reconcile it with the the other Cromwell that we kind of know. Well, he does readmit the Jews to England after 300 years. Um, so, I mean, um, and there's certainly no persecution of that such Muslims as there are in the country. Um, it, within Ireland, it's, it's much more limited in Ireland. First of all, he is violently anti-clerical. Um, but he's anti-clerical. He says to the Irish, the Irish clergy, yours is a covenant with death and hell. But he says to the Scottish Presbyterians, yours may be a covenant with death and hell. It's a nice distinction. As far as uh, Irish Catholics are concerned, what he, what he says, which you might think is a very minimal thing, and it is, it is a pretty minimal thing, I will not impose any burdens on your conscience. There are no obligations on you to attend Protestant worship. I will not make you do something against your conscience. He, he, he says you can worship in private, but he also says you can't have the Mass. So saying a Catholic you can worship but can't have the Mass is, is, is not, you know, it's not great news. Um, and he certainly did intend to drive most priests out of Ireland. He was convinced, wrongly as it turns out, but he was convinced that the Irish clergy solidly had instigated the uh, massacres which he believed to have taken place in the, um, the period after October 1641. Some Irish priests did support the rebellion and did support the violence that went along with it. Many more sought to restrain it. But the literature which Cromwell had access to had um, had singled out the the evidence of clergy. So he's violently anti-clerical, partly because he thinks clergy always clutter and and confuse people from their primary job, which was their own personal encounter with Christ in Scripture. 
And he thought that the sacramentalism of the Catholic Church and indeed of the Anglican Church got in the way of the much purer form of encounter with, with God through his word. He didn't like the Presbyterians in Scotland because they, had, they said only clergy could preach. And he was a great believer. Every, every believer should preach. But that's the complicated situation that you get. In New England, he actually sends um, troops in order to reimpose Catholic rule when the tolerant Catholic governor of Maryland was overthrown by Protestant refugees from uh, internal feuds in further north in, uh, in, in America. By their fruits you shall know them. Where Catholics were willing to work with him, he would work with them. Where Catholics had shown that they would um, they could take part, they would advocate massacres, then he would repress them. But it says, as always, it's an extremely complicated picture. Miranda, do you have a sense of how Cromwell is viewed today? Because I don't think it's, as we said, I don't think it's a straightforward story of him being universally admired and liked in, in Britain and, and despised in Ireland. I think there are, there are shades of opinion and uh, some who, who are critical of him and some who, who really admire him and look to see him as a great icon of British history. Very much, Patrick. All of us who, were, who work on Cromwell are very used to this. Uh, just from a sort of social point of view, that when you tell people what you specialise in and what you, who you write about, you get you can get such a mixed reaction. <laughs> Sometimes a very very uh, very hostile reaction. And I think that you you can see that almost from the from the top down. This is how I always see it. Is is that uh, and you know when I mentioned earlier how uh, there we have had centuries of of you know certain views of Cromwell being or, or being um, imposed almost ever since the Restoration. He does struggle now uh, with the fact that, for instance, I mean, we just had a Penguin series a few years ago of biographies of all the heads of state, all the monarchs, and Cromwell is given a biography, which which is, you know, an achievement in itself, but the cover of his book is black, where all the other kings and queens of, of England have white covers. And, you know, we still have a situation today where the, the portrait of Oliver Cromwell in Sydney, Sussex has curtains around it. Um, so in case a, a royal comes to visit the college, they can obscure um, Cromwell's view from the, from the gaze of, uh, of the, the royal member of the royal family. Um, so he still has packs a punch reputationally. Um, I also am always notice that when you go to the historic royal palaces, for instance, Hampton Court or Whitehall, where he lived, he is very rarely there um, on the information boards or in the guidebooks. Uh, there's not much coverage of the fact that he, he lived there and had a court there. Um, dealing with the fact that Cromwell and the interregnum period itself, the clue is in the name interregnum is regularly kind of whitewashed. So I, I think we have almost a bit of a mental block um, as, uh, as a nation on this period because it is the anomaly in the middle of our neat national story of kings and queens, um, which is a shame because I think actually it has a lot to tell us and a lot to teach us about you know, how Britain became the country that it is today is, is relevant to how we still have a constitutional monarch, um, perhaps. But yes, he... he he, there is an idea that every age creates its own Cromwell uh, because you know, he was uh, uh, hated in the, the decades after his uh, death, but then he was uh, sort of re, um, revived really under the Victorians, for whom he was a great hero. And then his reputation suffered again during the mid-20th century with comparison to um, the other dictators. Um, so, you know, he waxes and wanes, but... Um, it's it's important that we all carry on um, studying him and being interested in him because he was a very important figure in in our history. Michal, it was interesting when Miranda there said about the portrait and the curtains. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, it must be they're afraid some someone's going to come and throw paint over it uh, <laughs> rather than it's so that they can cover it up so a royal won't be offended by it. Uh, years ago, I was always struck. Uh, Niall Quinn, the great Irish footballer, said that he, uh, he he hoped to go back to college and and study because he wanted to find out why Cromwell was, was loved in England but hated in Ireland. But I suspect, you know, from what 
you've been saying, it should perhaps be a story of why he shouldn't really be be viewed well in either country because you see it as really part of that same story of a dictator, uh, a fundamentalist, and, uh, uh, and, and it's a problematic time in power. Yeah, I mean, I think as Miranda said, his reputation has waxed and waned over the centuries, uh, depending on the, on the circumstance of the time. Uh, and and there, there's no question about that. Uh, and I, I would absolutely advocate, uh, as, as she did, that, you know, we need to study this period. It's absolutely crucial in terms of trying to understand so much in terms of English nationalism, in terms of uh, the imperial agenda, in terms of the, the, the rule of law and, and governance. I mean, there's so much that we can learn from the mid-17th century, this absolutely extraordinary time. Uh, so there's no question about that. I mean, in terms of his legacy and reputation in Ireland, it's an awful one and quite deserved. Uh, and I don't think there's, that's going to change because, I mean, the charge sheet is very long uh, and it goes way beyond Wexford and, and Drogheda. I mean, as I said, it's a genocidal campaign and, uh, you know, it's extraordinarily savage and brutal. And then leading to the mass, uh, uh, you know, uh, replacement of the uh, existing social uh, landowners and replaced by a new Protestant ascendancy. So, I mean, whatever way we look at that, Patrick, it's, it's, it's pretty grim reading. In, in terms of then his broader legacy, including uh, England and Scotland, as I said, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a problematic one and it's, there, there's an awful lot to it that, that's not very uh, easy to, to admire. Nonetheless, as I said at the beginning of this, I think it's absolutely crucial to study it because there's so much to learn. I mean, we're dealing with aggressive English nationalism to a certain extent today, again, in very different contexts. Uh, and, and what we learn from the mid-17th century, I think, can, can, can sort of cast some light on that too. So I think we need to, you know, explore the past in a constructive way and rather going in knowing the answer. Uh, hopefully that we can go in and look at the evidence as we're now producing with these new three volumes to, to try and, and really better understand why things happened as they did. John, I'm going to leave the final word to you. Uh, What do you think should be seen as the legacy of Cromwell, this brave bad man of British and Irish history? That he was a brave bad man, that he was brave, uh, that he was was bad in the sense that his his obsessions both brought um, freedom to some, but it brought it brought uh, misery to others. There was such self-righteousness, such a complete conviction. And yet, within that conviction, there is a yearning to free people from tyranny, the tyranny of kings, the tyranny of, um, of priestcraft, and to free them from that. He yearns to do it, but uh, he fails to truly free them. And, of course, in the process of trying to make them free, um, he, he causes an awful lot of damage. Okay, well, my thanks to my absolutely brilliant panel of experts tonight for exploring with me the life, the legacy, the reputation of Oliver Cromwell, Professor Mihola Shukru of Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Miranda Mallins, and recommend her books, including The Rebel Daughter, Professor John Morrill, whose new book on Oliver Cromwell will be published next year. And we also heard from Professor Sarah Covington of Queen's College of the City of New York, whose book is The Devil from Over the Sea. Uh, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on sound. Join us next week for more debates and discussions. We've been Talking History. Good night.